Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. The scripture reading this morning will be from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And in your pew Bible, that's page 938. In the beginning the word was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the gla- glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here today. Your presence here today means something. I hope it means something to you. It certainly means something to me. It is a great blessing to me to be able to see you all here today. And every time that you're here, it's a blessing. And uh, certainly your presence here means something to God. Everybody makes mistakes. That's just a fact, and we all know it. And anybody that uh, can't admit that is lying to themselves. And uh, so some mistakes are worse than others. You know, you may uh, fail the carpenter's rule, measure twice, cut once. You may measure once and have to cut twice, all right? But that's not necessarily a sin. But some mistakes we make are sins. the, The Word of God, when it was first given to us in written form, was written to give correction to our mistakes, to the mistakes of the human race, And to tell us the truth about life and godliness. And every single book of the Bible that has been written from generation to generation until its completion nearly 2,000 years ago simply added to that purpose, added to the purpose of correcting us in our mistakes and of teaching us the truth about life and godliness. And all mistakes have consequences that are comparable to the level of that mistake. 
sins carry with them the consequence of the death penalty. Romans 6, verse 23, the Bible tells us, for the wages of sin is death. We know that physical death came into this world as a result of Adam's sin. We all die because the forefather, the father of our race, made that choice for the human race. As the head of the race, Adam made a choice, and that choice has affected all of his descendants. And brothers and sisters, we know that that principle is still in effect today, that oftentimes children do suffer for the mistakes of their parents. And that's one of the ways the consequences can have uh, or that mistakes can have serious consequences, some that are uh, superior to, e even last far longer than the mistake itself does. Sins, of course, are the greatest of all mistakes, and they have the greatest of all consequences. But, of course, even with regard to sins, there are some sins that have greater consequences than others. That brings us to this passage that we have been talking about, it's been our scripture reading during the whole of this series, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Today, Lord willing, I'm starting a two-part uh, exegesis of this passage. where We're going to look at these 14 verses that begins John's gospel and really think about them and try to understand what they're saying to us. And, and as we do this, we're going to begin to really, I think, uh, come to the pay dirt of what we've been approaching all year long with this series for him. The Bible says in John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see the way John begins his gospel account. He starts it with those three words, in the beginning. And anybody that knows the Bible even a little bit knows that that's not the first time we hear those words in the Bible. In fact, the first time we hear those words in the Bible is the first time we open the Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Those are the first words of the Bible. Those words are the first in the story of God and everything that God is revealing to us to tell us the truth about himself and about life, to, to give us the truth so that our, our mistakes can be corrected, so that we can correct our paths through life and proceed in a direction that leads to success, not only in this life, which is something God cares about, but more importantly, success in the life to come. They begin with those words, in the beginning. And the Bible doesn't tell us much of anything about what came before the beginning. It's kind of an oxymoron to say that something could come before a beginning, but that's exactly what this passage teaches us, is that there was something, or rather we should say someone, who was already being before the beginning. The Bible doesn't bother to explain to us how that works because we're talking about the nature of deity, which is above our pay grade. His ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts higher than our thoughts, as the prophet Isaiah teaches us. And so uh, the Bible doesn't tell us how God can exist outside of time, how time can have no constraints upon God whatsoever, that he can just exist because he exists. When God says he is, when he told Moses, I am, that's the truth that he was communicating to him, which is something that is beyond our comprehension. Everything that matters to us begins at the beginning, the beginning of time, the beginning of this universe, the beginning of our world. And that's why the Bible begins with those words. And we cannot miss the importance of John also beginning his gospel with these words. Because when he does, he is trying to draw our minds to make a connection between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the beginning 
of everything. John is showing us the connection between the gospel and creation. The story of the good news of Jesus is the story of this world, and it is its history, and it always has been so. Please keep that in mind. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those who've been members and attenders here for uh, any length of time know that I, I really love to get into uh, the meat of this passage because it's very, very important. And I, I want to ask everyone maybe that may not be familiar with what I'm about to teach or if you are familiar with what I'm about to teach to let it reinforce what you've learned previously because it's extremely important for the sake of some people's salvation that you understand the truth that I'm about to tell you, all right? We have some friends in the world, and I do believe they're in the world in spite of what they believe about themselves, and they call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. And they hold to an, a heresy about Jesus that is an ancient heresy called the Arian heresy. And it is the belief that Jesus is a created being. And they will regard Jesus as the first of all created beings and the highest of all created beings. But they do argue that Jesus is not God eternal, but only God with a lowercase g. But he was the first of the acts of the Father they will teach. The first thing the Father did was create Jesus the Son. That is Jehovah's Witness doctrine is the ancient Arian heresy, and it is a damning heresy. One of the things that the Bible teaches us that we cannot make a mistake about, and there are some things the Bible teaches us we, we cannot make a mistake about these things and be right with God. There are many things that we might be mistaken about all of our lives as we try to serve Jesus faithfully, and those things will be covered over by grace because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But the blood of Jesus Christ only covers those who believe in the real and true Jesus Christ. To make a mistake about the nature of the Son of God falls under the biblical category of anti-Christian teaching and doctrine. So to deny what John is teaching us in this passage is a grievous mistake. And this is not difficult for us to understand what I'm about to tell you. And so the next time that the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, feel free to invite them in and sit them down and say, can we look at John chapter 1? And let me tell you just a few things about these first few verses. Maybe they won't sit and talk with you. Maybe they're too indoctrinated for that. The whole system of the so-called Jehovah's Witness faith is very cult-like. I'm not trying to be mean to any of those folks. I testify to them like Paul did about the Jews in the beginning of Romans 10, that they have a zeal for God. I don't deny that. I respect that about them and I appreciate them. But just like the unbelieving Jews after the ascension of Christ, it was not according to knowledge, so their views are not according to knowledge and they desperately need correction. You see, this word was here, this be verb, it is a translation in English of the original Greek word ain, which is a version of the word me, which is I am. It's the be verb in Greek. And I want you to understand, those that are following along with the U version, I've given you more extensive notes about the Greek tense of this word was in John chapter 1 verse 1. I'm not going to read all of that to y'all. You've got it in the notes if you've got that. But I just want to tell you what you see there on the screen is that this verb is the imperfect active indicative third person singular of the Greek verb to be verb, a me. And what that means, I'll go backwards. 
Indicative means it's telling us facts. Indicative says this is a fact that I'm about to share with you. The active means that the subject of the verb is doing the action. In this case, the subject is being, right? And finally, the imperfect tense refers to action that was already ongoing in the past without any reference to when it was completed. In other words, when the imperfect tense is used, it's pointing to something that was going on in the past. It was already going on when we read about it having happened in the past. And it was continuing to happen in the past. And it says nothing about even if that action has come to some kind of end. All right? And so we could literally translate John 1 verse 1. In the beginning, the word was already existing. That is the literal meaning of the Greek tense that is used to describe the nature of the word, the logos, the living word of God in this passage. And so when we think about the text, in the beginning the word was already being, and the word was already being with God, and the word already was God. That is the literal meaning of the imperfect, active, indicative, third person singular use of the Greek to be verb in John 1 verse 1. Our so-called Jehovah's Witness friends are grievously mistaken. And if you want to study about this further, I have a copy of their false translation of the word, and I'll show you where they make mistakes in this passage, and I can also show you how they don't, they're, they're, the, fo the folks that made their translation, they call the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, were not Greek students. They were not Greek scholars. They did not correctly translate the Greek, and in fact, they inconsistently even followed the rules that they claim to be following in John chapter 1. Enough about them. But I want you to be able to sit down with those folks. You don't have to know anything else. And please, if you do study with them, don't let them lead the study. Just say, well, I would love to study with you. But if we're going to study, the first thing we need to do is talk about the Son of God, our Savior, because there's nothing more important than that. And we could start with John chapter 1, verse 1, and I would love just to sit with you for a half hour and talk with you through these five verses. And at the end of that, if you want to continue to study, I would be delighted to do that. And that would be the strategy that I would urge you to use as you try to talk with them if they are willing to talk with you. But now I want us to, to compound our thoughts here to build upon what we've already talked about. You see, this is, is what was already happening, what was already being. The Word was being with God, and the Word was God. Now, those of you that know this passage know that the Word is another name for Jesus. The Greek word logos is another name for Jesus, and that's what John is, is going on about in this passage. And the concept of logos, the, the, which is translated often word, it is the Greek word from which we get the, um, uh, the logi in, in things like biology, and, and, and various different kinds of sciences, psychology. The logi comes from this Greek word, logos. And, and it was something that the Greek philosophers had used this word logos for centuries to talk about the explanation of the universe. And, and so John takes this word that the Greek culture already knew as one of the philosophers has used to, to say, well, there's an explanation 
uh, for the purpose of the universe and the order in the universe and the word that describes the explanation for the universe and the order in the universe, that is the word logos. And John says, do you want to know what the purpose of the universe is? You want to hear the universe explained? It's explained personally in a person who is the logos. And that person is Jesus Christ the Lord, the Son of God. There is not anything more profound that could be said. And so Scripture teaches us the dual nature of Jesus. He is absolutely fully God, absolutely being fully human. And He is as the Father is, the great I am. And he is before all things. The Bible tells us in him all things consist. And there cannot possibly be anyone who has ever walked this earth or who ever will that is the equal of Jesus the Christ, much less his superior. You cannot be wrong about that and be right with God. In the book of Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul, speaking of Jesus, says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. By, by studying the nature of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, how Christ, the eternal Logos, dwelling in the form of God, took on human nature and became a human being, we learn a lot about the essence of being a human being. What it is to be human is to be a creature made in the likeness of Almighty God, spirit plus body. The, the nature of a human being has always been and will always be, and the resurrection confirms this, a, a spirit being living in a body. Now when we die physically, if we die previous to the second coming of Christ, we will go to be with the Lord as disembodied spirits for a period of time. The Bible does not merely teach life after death and some kind of spiritual existence. The Bible teaches the resurrection of the body because it is God's intention for us to be what he originally intended us to be, and that is embodied spirits. We are to be the material of this world that God has made, but the spiritual representative of God in it and to it. In other words, human beings form a priestly role between God and his material creation. And in some form or another, there's controversy in our brotherhood about just how you understand the extent of that. And that's fine. We don't have to be divisive about that. But let me tell you this. In some form or another, material creation will never cease to exist. Because the bodies of the saints raised from the dead will be eternally material. That, my brothers and sisters, is not controversial. That is a fundamental, essential doctrine of the faith. The resurrection of the body is a no compromise, fundamental, essential doctrine of the faith. You cannot disagree with this doctrine and be a, a Christian the way that the Bible defines Christianity. And I make no apologies for being bold about that because there are some in our brotherhood today who are departing from the faith by denying the resurrection of the body. And brothers and sisters, that's got to be put to a stop and brought to an end. Now I want you to consider about even Christ in Colossians 2 verse 9. He didn't just temporarily become a man. 
He became human. He is eternally God being human. He eternally became the bridge between God and man, the high priest who intercedes between the spirit form of God, which is incomprehensible to us, and the nature of man that we can understand. And that's how Jesus is the Logos. That's how he is the explanation about the universe. That's how he makes sense of God to us because we cannot understand God in his infinite spirit form. But we can understand God become a man when he comes to us on our level and becomes one of us. Brothers and sisters, that is such an act of grace on God's part. That it's just mind-blowing, beyond comprehension, that one of the persons of deity would leave that perfect form, the perfect bliss of that eternal love that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit shared from all eternity and would come into the mess that we have made of this world because of sin and let us murder him. I, I cannot possibly express in words that are adequate just how great a gift the Son of God is to us. And, and just how great a love that God has shown. I just, I, I want you to think about this passage. For in him, in him, that's Christ, the whole fullness of deity, that's the Godhead, dwells bodily. And I want you to notice the present tense of this passage. And take care to consider when Colossians was written. It was written decades after the ascension of Christ into heaven, and it speaks in the present tense that in Christ presently dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. Christ is in heaven out of our sight, and he is an embodied human being sitting on a throne at the right hand of the divine presence of his Father. And that is essential, fundamental Christian doctrine. You can't be wrong about it. And be right with God. This is not all we learn from this great text. As we expand our thoughts to the whole of the first five verses of this passage, we read this. And this is really what puts our friends that have been misled by these Jehovah's Witness teachings to shame. All things were made through him. The Father didn't make anything that he didn't make through Jesus, his son, through the eternal Logos, his eternal son. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, everything that actually was created was created through the person of Jesus, the Son of God. It's not possible that Jesus was created because then one thing that was created would have been created separate and apart from Jesus because Jesus couldn't have created himself from non-existence. You understand what I'm saying? And so the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms, Jesus is uncreated. Jesus in his eternal form, before he became a human being, was forever in the Godhead, an uncreated person who is in fact the creator. The man Jesus that walked the dusty streets of Palestine 2,000 years ago, whom we look to come back to finish his business on judgment day in this world, that man is in fact the eternal God. And that's why we bow down and worship him. And when I see Jesus returned in glory again as an exalted and glorified human being, it will be the first time in my life that I have ever bowed down in the physical presence of a man and worshiped him, and I will do it with a clean conscience. And with joy and with glory, I cannot wait to bow down in the presence of my Lord. It's, it's the purpose for my existence, and I hope it is for yours also. 
John wants us to know how essential a role in creation the Logos played. The Savior of fallen creation is the Creator Himself who has become a part of the works of His own hands in the person of the Son of God. And as such, the gospel affirms the purpose, again, logos, it's the meaning of that word, the purpose, the explanation. The gospel affirms the purpose of everything that exists. Everything that exists, including including us, was created for and by Jesus, for him now and for him forever. If you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, where we're going to read verses 15 through 23 together. I'll be reading from the New King James Version, page 1045 and 46 in your pew Bibles if you want to follow along. This is the passage actually uh, from, from which our, our theme this year derives its name and description. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15, read with me please. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. You may not recognize this if you're not familiar with this kind of language throughout the whole of the Bible, but this means that all of the great angelic beings were created by Jesus Christ, by him, for him. The archangel Michael is a creation of Jesus, just as every man, woman, and child is a creation of Jesus, created by him, for him, as this passage says. And he is before all things, verse 17, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And by him, that is by Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. In other words, Jesus' mission is to reconcile everything that God made to himself. Everything that God ever created, Jesus is reconnecting to God, restoring to God, cleansing for God's use and God's purpose. Verse 21, listen, and you, you brothers and sisters, me, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, myself became a minister." Brothers and sisters, the the, the Bible is extremely clear uh, about the centrality of Christ, about the nature of his person, about the essential doctrines and teachings that the church is to embrace and to spread and to share about him, about just how important Jesus is to us. And so with these things in mind, we we look at the last two verses of, of the first five of John 1. In him, again, Jesus, the Logos, in him was, it's the same Greek tense, you see, In him was life. In other words, he was already living before the beginning. In him was life. And the life, the only life that was, the eternal life, 
that is in God only, that life was already being the light of men. In other words, his life is life. His life is the truth. And that light shines in the darkness. What were his first words? Let there be light. The first words in the beginning of the Logos, of the living word of God, by the Father's will, it was the pre-incarnate Christ who said, let there be light. And yes, he was referring in Genesis 1 to the physical light that we all enjoy and appreciate today that enables us to see where we're going and what we're doing and what a blessing that is. Uh, but that in of itself is a metaphor for enlightenment, for the spiritual light that enables us to understand reality and the one who reigns over reality and the pathway that is right for us to pursue in reality because reality is following Jesus. Jesus is the truth, the reality. And listen, the darkness has not overcome it. Some versions say did not comprehend it or did not appropriate it or did not accept it. And all of these things are true. Different ways to translate the Greek that John wrote in this passage. The darkness in the world, that which, which blinds its eyes, which shields its eyes from the truth. I don't want to see the truth, Lord. I don't want to live the way that you want me to live. I don't want to submit to you. That's the will of sin that is pervasive in human civilization. And it willingly blinds itself to the light. It doesn't want to comprehend it. It doesn't accept it. And it certainly has not and cannot overcome it. And if you set yourself against Jesus, you lose. You lose. You can fight him for 70 or 80 years if that's what you choose to do. Beloved, on that day, you're going to stand in front of his throne. And he's going to judge you whether you want him to or not. It's who he is. It's his right. It's the Father's will. You're going to have to deal with Jesus. Deal with him in this life in faith. And all will be well for you. But if you choose to reject him all your physical life, you won't escape him. I'm warning you. You can dislike what the Bible says about this or about that. It's there because Jesus said it. Because it is the will of the one who gave himself to die for you. It's in the written word because it is in the heart and the mind of the living word. Because it's true. The Bible tells us what it tells us because it's true. And so, brothers and sisters, maybe we don't like some of the things that the Bible has said. All of us have some something in the Bible somewhere. If you, if you don't, you haven't studied it enough. All right? All of us have got something in the Bible somewhere we don't exactly like. That if we had written this thing, we'd have written that a little bit differently. It's not my place. It's not your place. My fantasies have no bearing on Judgment Day. Only reality does. Only reality does. I want to break down these five verses of John in this way. 
The living word of God possesses life. He is life. He is part of the great I am. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the one God, the great I am. And Jesus, as the eternal Logos, needs nothing outside himself to sustain his life. He is dependent upon nothing and no one. And this is why Jesus said that the Father had given him the authority to lay down his life and the Father had given him authority to take it up again. And so Jesus willingly gave himself to die and he died and he was buried. And on the third day, Jesus used his authority over life as the one who is life embodied to rise from the dead. And in so doing, he conquered death he assaulted the gates of Hades and broke them down and took possession of them just like Samson tore the gates off the city and carried them away. Jesus is the fulfillment of Samson, the greater Samson, and there is no one stronger than Jesus. He even defeated death. And that's why I bow down and worship him and will. And I'll believe and I'll trust until I go to see him or until he comes back to us because I know who he is. Because the gospel tells me who he is. His life is the truth, the reality. In a day and age when everyone wants to celebrate their own truth, I want to be true to me and live my truth. Brothers and sisters, I tell you what, you can conceive of all kinds of fantasies in your mind about yourself and about the world you live in. But ultimately, if it disagrees with the mindset of Jesus, it is not anybody's truth. If your truth disagrees with the written word of God, it disagrees with the living word of God, and it is not truth. The Bible is truth. And what it says is true and right. Jesus is the embodiment of that truth. And what we mean by truth is reality. We mean what really is the case. As I've already said, that Jesus is unavoidable. He is unavoidable. You will encounter Jesus meaningfully at some point in your life. You need to encounter him meaningfully now. And you need to submit yourself to him in faith. There's one more thing that I want to say, but listen. As the Logos, Jesus is the one who makes sense of life and reality. He's the one. He's the explanation from God, the meaning of the universe. And he is our only trustworthy teacher. And the fact of the matter is about this world, about the universe, about all times, that all who remain ignorant of or reject Jesus abide in darkness. They're the ones that fifth verse talks about who do not apprehend or do not comprehend or do not embrace the light. They run from it. They flee from it. The gospel is very much concerned with the problem of evil. And in fact, the gospel is the only solution for evil. The gospel itself is the basis and justification for the certain doom that awaits it that is evil and all who impenitently commit evil and promote evil, which means certainly, if it means anything else, just one thing. Rejecting Jesus, my friends, means certain doom. It means certain doom. You can't beat him. You ought to love him. But even if you don't like him, the pragmatic thing to do is to join him. 
because he's already won, man. He's God. He's God being man, the king of the universe. I pray that you'll deal with him in faith. Yeah, I said in the beginning, we all make mistakes. We all do. Some mistakes are worse than others because some are sins. Some sins are worse than others because of the consequences. Because as a follower of Jesus, we all, I don't know, maybe we commit thousands of sins over the course of our lives. But being in covenant relationship with God through Jesus, His blood washes them all away. Right? There's one sin that you dare not commit. And that is unbelief. Unbelief or rejection of the Son of God. Because if you reject Jesus, there is no forgiveness of your sins. I don't know what your condition is this morning, but my friends, if you're not yet a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you need to do what the Bible says in order to embrace Him in faith. And that begins with making confession of your belief that Jesus is the Son of God, and you make that confession promising that you're now going to turn your life over to Him. You're not saying that you're going to suddenly be perfect. Your perfection is going to be the Spirit's work in you. What you're saying is that you're changing your loyalty. And that from now on, repentance means that you've given your life to serve Jesus and you'll serve Him until He comes again or until you go to Him. And in fact, you'll serve Him for eternity. That's what, that's what it means to repent of our sins. And you're going to begin that walk of living life as a student and follower of Jesus, as a subject to King Jesus, by obeying his commandment to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The water is ready. The water is warm. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. We will wash your sins away in the flood of Christ's blood today if you have not yet given your life to Jesus. And this morning, if you are a baptized believer, you don't need to be baptized again. If you've got sins in your life or concerns or weaknesses or, or anything that you would like us to pray for, the front pews are open. Come, as together we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.